take a moment, if you would, contemplate the following words. Let them settle in. Saturate your thoughts. There is nothing that we can do to make God love us more. There's nothing we can do to make God love us less. Are these statements an accurate reflection of biblical truth? Do they make you uncomfortable? Honestly, they make me very uncomfortable. But the reality of true grace, the amazing kind of grace, the kind that caused the slave trader John Newton to pen the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It's extremely uncomfortable. In his award-winning book, What's So Amazing About Grace, author Philip Yancey relates just how uncomfortable grace really is. Sit back and listen as I read a little excerpt from that book to you. He writes, I participated in a lively discussion on the topic of forgiveness the week Jeffrey Dahmer died in prison. Dahmer, a mass murderer, had abused and then killed 17 young men, cannibalizing them and storing body parts in his refrigerator. His arrest caused a shakeup in the Milwaukee Police Department when it became known that officers had ignored the desperate pleas of a Vietnamese teenager who tried to escape by running naked and bleeding from Dahmer's apartment. That boy, too, became Dahmer's victim, one of 11 corpses found in his apartment. In November of 1994, Dahmer himself was murdered, beaten to death with a broom handle wielded by a fellow prisoner. Television news reports that day included interviews with the grieving relatives of Dahmer's victims, most of whom said they regretted Dahmer's murder only because it ended his life too soon. He should have had to suffer by being forced to live longer and think about the terrible things he had done. One network showed a television program taped a few weeks before Dahmer's death. The interviewer asked him how he could possibly do the things he had been convicted of. And at the time, he didn't believe in God. Dahmer said, and he felt accountable to no one. He began with petty crimes, experimented with small acts of cruelty, and then just kept on going further and further and further. Nothing restrained him. Dahmer then told of his recent religious conversion. He had been baptized in the prison whirlpool, and he was spending all of his time reading religious material given to him by a local Church of Christ minister. The camera switched to an interview with the prison chaplain who affirmed that Dahmer had indeed repented and was now one of the mo- his most faithful worshipers. Yet he continues, the discussion in my small group tended to divide between those who had watched only the news programs on Dahmer's death and those who had also watched the interview with him. The former group saw Dahmer as a monster, And any reports of a jailhouse conversion, they dismissed out of hand. The relatives' anguished faces made a deep impression. One person said candidly, crimes that bad can never be forgiven. 
He couldn't have been sincere. Those who had seen the interview with Dahmer were not so sure. They agreed his crimes were heinous beyond belief, yet he had seemed contrite, even humble. The conversation turned to the question, is anyone beyond forgiveness? No one left the evening feeling entirely comfortable with the answers. The question's an important one. Is anyone beyond forgiveness? Especially as we view Jesus' parable in Luke 15. From the standpoint of the older brother. In light of the example I just gave, most of us would have to confess that we side with the older brother in this case. He had a point. And in so doing, we align ourselves with the scribes and Pharisees who Jesus was clearly addressing this parable to. It raises a great spiritual battle within our souls. It presents me, as one author put it, with the inner, inner drama of the soul. and invites us to make a personal decision about our own lives. And it's no easy decision. This parable is about two lost sons. It's about two men who need transformation. It's about two who need to be found. Identifying their needs, Henry Nouwen makes us aware that, quote, both needed healing and forgiveness, both needed to come home, both needed the embrace of a forgiving father. But from the story itself, it is clear that the hardest conversion to go through is the conversion of the one who stayed home. Think about that. He continues, the more I reflect on the elder son in me, the more I realize how deeply rooted this form of lostness really is and how hard it is to return home from there. Returning home from a lustful escapade seems so much easier than returning home from a cold anger that has rooted itself in the deepest corners of my being. It's true, isn't it? All of us must inevitably deal with the older son or the older daughter inside of us. The central question Jesus desires to ultimately raise here is that will you allow the bedrock of your resentment to crumble under the blanket of God's grace? Or will you hold on to it? Will each one of us, as the elder son or daughter, coldly resist or warmly accept the generous offer that the Father makes? the grace he pleads for us to embrace. That is the choice that awaits you and me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is always serious business when we deal with it. As the scripture says, it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing to the soul and spirit both joy and marrow. It unveils the deepest thoughts and intentions of our heart and nothing, nothing, nothing is hidden from your sight. We are open and laid bare before you, Father. So root out those things, Lord, that need to be rooted out and build up the things that make us like Christ. For we ask it 
in the gracious and the holy and precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Luke 15 again, if you would. I'm just going to deal with verses 25 to 32 this morning. Let me read them to you. Now, his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. And we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and he began, and he has begun to live again and was lost and has been found. After years of ministry, a well-known Christian counselor and author concluded this. He said, many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these. Number one, failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness. And two, the failure to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people. We read, we hear, we believe a good theology of grace, but that's not the way we live. The good news of the gospel of grace has not penetrated, he says, the level of our emotions. How much of the elder son resides in me? How much of it resides in you? Well, let's see, because you'll know by the end of the message. Let's look at this questionable investigation in the first few verses, verses 25 to 27. I just read it to you, so I won't do it again, but his initiation. Let's look at this initial thing here. It wasn't until the sound of the party reached the ears of the elder brother, the elder son, that the truth reared its ugly head in this man. It probably took him by surprise even. Verse 28 pinpoints the raw truth. If you want to look at verse 28, it says, but he became angry and was not willing to go in. It erupted from deep within his heart, resentment, bitterness, jealousy, unforgiveness, malice, slander, every characteristic of ungrace imaginable. And where in the world did it come from? Where did it come from? This is a very common tale, isn't it? For the most part, our Christian lives look so good on the outside to most people when you come to church on Sunday. We try to play by the rules. We confess when we don't and we break the rules. We try to keep on track. We dot our spiritual I's. We cross our spiritual T's. We put our best foot forward and stick to the plan as best that we know how. We're working hard in the fields. 
We deserve some recognition, right? We see others outside the family, drifting, running, free-spirited, plunging headlong into sin, and we talk about the grace that they need as if we need it any less. And then without warning, in the midst of our working, working, working for Jesus, pressing in the kingdom, dispelling the darkness, someone like a Jeffrey Dahmer gets caught up in God's tidal wave of grace, gets washed safely ashore, the angels throw a party, and we get frustrated. Correct? Actually, it's more than frustration. We become incensed, like the older brother in the parable. The word Luke uses in verse 28 implies more than a temporary fit of anger. It denotes deep-seated malice that he was holding on to. Then comes the inquiry. He summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. It's not hard to understand the son's position. Coming in from the field, here's the party in full bloom without him. Right? No one told him. No one waited. I'm glad I wasn't the servant who had to break the news to this guy. I know what it's like to be an older son. I'm the oldest of ten. I know what it's like to try to be the model kid. I know what it's like to break in parents. <laughs> my brothers got away with murder after me. To watch my younger brothers get away with a hundred times more than I did. I had more responsibilities than at a younger age, right? If you're an older child, you know exactly how the story goes, don't you? You're the trailblazer. You pave the way. Then it gets smooth and easy. And you get a chip on your shoulder. My guess, wrote one observer, is that he was not incensed by his younger brother's return or even by his father's forgiveness of him. He was incensed by the celebration. Let, let the penitent come home if you want to. By all means, let him come home to penance, not a party. Right? He's got to pay. Isn't that getting really at how we feel deep down inside? That's how the Pharisees were feeling, sure. It's precisely those feelings of anger and envy that provided the occasion for this parable. Look at, just back up a little bit in Luke 15. Look at the first two verses. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Paves the way, doesn't it? Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. You got to know what that means, he eats with them. To have a meal and share a meal with somebody in that culture was like a major thing. It's tantamount to embracing them, making them part of your family, making them part of you. And this is what Jesus was doing with the tax collectors and sinners. Pharisees didn't like it at all. God helped the elder son, wrote someone. 
God help him and God help all of us who understand his rage and who have felt so excluded and whose hurt has run so deep that we have cut ourselves off from the very one who love and acceptance we so desperately need. The questionable investigation of the older son implicates the scribes and Pharisees who took Jesus to task for welcoming sinners with open and forgiving arms. And are we any different? In this blatant reflective image, Jesus brings them and us face to face with this contemptible insensitivity that the elder brother has. Contemptible insensitivity in verse 28. Angry, not willing to go in, making the father come out and plead with him. It is fiery infuriation. The older brother was incensed, as I've said already. So this is how you get attention around here, he's thinking. You go out, you get drunk, you go broke, and then you get a party. So he sat outside and he threw a party of his own, a pity party. And the more he thought, the more bitter he got. And the more bitter he got, the more resentful he became. So much so that the father had to come out to him. And notice the father's invitation. His father came out and began pleading with him. Notice this father. His love never changes. It doesn't change. It's not altered by the younger son's actions. It's not altered by the older son's actions. It's steadfast. It's unconditional. His love doesn't change. He doesn't play favorites. He seeks out the oldest son, and he does something, actually, that he never did with the younger son. He pleads for him to come in. And the word there means to implore or beseech or to beg. He's really encouraging his son with everything in his being to get off his pity pot and come in and join in the joy. This word encouraging, very important word. Actually, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12 and 13 uses that same word. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another. There's the word, that word that was used in Luke 15 for pleading. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That word's used again in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 and verse 25. Something that we are charged to do, right? Let us consider in verse 24 how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Is that word again? Pleading with one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We don't have time for this junk, people. This is what he's saying. You should be pleading and begging and encouraging one another to live like Christ because Christ is right at the door. We don't have time for the petty little baloney that we try to play on each other all day long in the body of Christ. He says, encourage one another. And don't stop gathering together. Don't stand outside while the party's going on. Join in. This encouraging word means to come alongside and call for, to invite them in, to compel them by invitation. It's part of our mission and purpose, by the way to invite people 
to introduce them to Jesus Christ, to invite them to become his committed followers, to help them to become his committed followers. It seems pathetic that the father here had to spend his time inviting the one who already lived in the house back in. Right? Reminds me of another painful invitation in the Scripture. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Here's Jesus outside the door of the church, knocking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. We always use this verse of Scripture as an evangelistic verse of Scripture that we're calling out to the sinners. Jesus is standing there knocking on the door of your heart to come into you, to dine with you. But if you read it in context, you realize that Jesus is talking to the church at Laodicea. He says, I'm standing outside the door of the church knocking to get in. That's how far they had fallen. Same thing here. Father's reaction here is amazing. He doesn't even flinch. No recrimination, no argumentation, no punishment for the disrespect, which was every bit as reprehensible as his younger brother's disrespect at the beginning of the parable. The father's heart goes out equally to both of his sons. He wants both of his sons back But the older son reveals the true heart that had been buried beneath the surface for years and years and years that nobody ever saw. By his own words, he implicates himself as being lost. Look at the words of verse 29. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. But you never gave me even a goat. Celebrate with my friends. He's contemptibly insensitive, not only toward his brother, but especially toward his father, who is the real target here of the contempt. He's saying the same thing all of us say. It's not fair. It's not fair. Why should someone who has lived an entire life in rebellion against God in the last moments of their lives repent and find grace? That's that's just not fair. Why should they end up in the same place I will? Right? Why should they end up in the same place the saints will? We who have served him and slaved for him for years is what the elder brother is saying. And the brother's voice rings. It rings with painful familiarity, doesn't it? Maybe you've heard the joke about the fellow who prayed with the bad attitude, right? Why, he asked the Lord, has my brother been blessed with wealth and I with nothing? All my life, I've never missed a single day without saying morning and evening prayers. My church attendance has been perfect. I've always loved my neighbor and given my money. Yet now as I near the end of my life, I can hardly afford to pay my rent. My brother, on the other hand, drinks, he gambles, he plays all the time, yet he has more money than he can count. I don't ask you to punish him, but tell me please, Lord, why has been, he has been given so much And I have been giving nothing. Because, God replied, you're such a self-righteous pain in the neck. That's why. Guard your attitude. See, that was the real issue. And the Pharisees didn't miss it for one minute. We all have this streak of older son in us. We think we deserve the party, the praise, the prominent position. We deserve nothing. We deserve nothing. 
This father not, had only not only lost his younger son to a life of recklessness, but he lost his older son to a more serious fate. According to another writer, he lost his older son to a life of angry self-righteousness that takes him so far away from the father that he might as well be feeding pigs in a far country. He wants his father to love him as he deserves to be loved because he has stayed put and he has followed the orders and he's done the right thing and he wants his father to love him for all of that and his father does love him but not for any of that. Any more than he loves the younger brother for what he has done. He does not love either of his sons according to what they deserve. He just loves them more because of who he is than because of who they are. And especially because of what they have done. And the elder brother cannot stand that concept. He can't stand a love that transcends right and wrong, a love that throws homecoming parties for prodigal sinners and expects the hardworking righteous to rejoice. He can't stand it, and so he stands outside, outside his father's house. Sad, isn't it? And that is right where Jesus pinned the tail on the Pharisees. They're grumbling. Jesus being around sinners, about Jesus being around sinners, had gone far enough. Look at the certifiable implication of this parable that Jesus makes here. Verse 31, he said to him, Son, you have always been with me. All that's mine is yours. Don't you know we had to celebrate? That the dead has come alive. The lost has been found. The implication Jesus makes here is that anyone who sides with the older son is as lost as the younger son ever was. He doesn't understand his own need. Look at this older brother. Just look at him. He's self-centered. He's self-inflated. He's self-serving, claiming to be slaving for the Father all these years. Is that what following Christ is? Slaving? It is slavery, but it's not slaving. It's not burdensome. It's a privilege. It's an opportunity. It's freedom. See, the older brother's self-righteous. I've never gone against one of your commands, he says. Really? Seriously? He's self-seeking. You never gave me right. Everything that the father had was in his possession, and he was going to inherit it all became self-absorbed, and he became slanderous. This son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours. I don't want to have anything to do with him. It all amounts to inner resentment and ingratitude. And friends, joy and resentment cannot coexist. Joy and resentment cannot coexist because it's a false joy. If you think that you're having full joy in your life, in your spiritual life, and you are resenting your Christian brother or sister, it's impossible. You can't do it because the Holy Spirit doesn't operate that way. Something is wrong there. His ingratitude, ingratitude for sure. You never gave me so much as a goat. 
He was so focused on what he didn't have that he forgot what he did have. He had the job. He had the inheritance. Twice as much as the younger brother. He had the attention of his father day and night. And as someone has said, the only thing he didn't have, like I said in the earlier, when I started this series, he didn't have the spotlight, and that bugged him. When resentfulness characterizes our spirituality, we unravel the truth of God's grace and we miss the whole entire party. In fact, we withdraw from the party. We resent it. We don't want to be around it. Resentment, you know, does a number on a person, Christian or not. I'll give you a few things that resentment does. Number one, his resentment made him self-centered. Made him self-centered. Look at the pronouns in this passage. Literally, mark them, highlight them in your Bible. I, me, mine. I, me, mine. All the way through it. My, right? Literally, I have been slaving for you all these years. The word that he uses there means bondage. Was he a slave to his father, really? He was a slave to his own guilt. Resentment blocks the perception and experience of life as a gift. That's what it does. Henry Nouwen says, there is a very strong, dark voice in me that says the opposite. God isn't really interested in me. He prefers the repentant sinner who comes home after his wild escapades. He doesn't pay attention to me who has never left the house. He takes me for granted. I'm not his favorite son. I don't expect him to give me what I really want. At times, this dark voice is so strong, he says, that I need enormous spiritual energy to trust that the father wants me home as much as he does the younger son. It requires a real discipline to step over my chronic complaint and to think, speak, and act with the conviction that I am being sought and I will be found by him. Without such discipline, I become prey to self-perpetuating hopelessness. By telling myself that I am not important enough to be found, I amplify my self-complaint until I have become totally deaf to the voice that is calling within me. God's voice. At some point, I must totally disown my self-rejecting voice and claim the truth that God does indeed want to embrace me as much as he does my wayward brothers and sisters. Secondly, the resentment made him self-inflated. Self-inflated. Look at the ludicrous claim. I have never neglected a command of yours. And the emphasis is not on the grace he had received, but on what he had done to deserve his father's favor. And it was clearly misrepresented here. Here he was railing his father in contempt and claiming that he, was all, that he had always obeyed him without fail. He was disobeying him right there. Here's hypocrisy at its climax. It's the attitude that will not admit sin nor turn from sin, but rather justify sin. It's the picture of a hypocrite, a person who puts on a face and makes an impression. The Greek word literally means to put on a mask. And we all have kinds of way, all kinds of ways to mask what is really going on inside of us, don't we? Philip Yancey writes of a friend who studied legalism among Buddhist monks in Sri Lanka. He says the monks had all agreed to follow the 212 rules of the Buddha, many of which were outdated now and impractical. Terry wondered how the monks could reconcile their need to live in the modern world with their adherence to an ancient legalistic code. 
For example, the Buddha had specified that no monk should carry money. And yet this friend Terry regularly observed monks paying fares on city buses. So he asked, do any of you follow the 212 rules? They said, yes. He said, do you handle money? They said, yes. He said, are you aware of the rule against money? And they said, yes. And he said, do you follow the rules? And they said, yes. The rules also forbade eating afternoon for the monks lived on handouts, and the Buddha did not want his followers to burden housewives. Modern monks got around that rule. You know how? By stopping the clock at noon each day. <laughs> and after the evening meal, they reset the clock to the correct time. He says, I have examples from Buddhism, but in my experience, hypocrisy is one of the most common reasons why people reject Christianity. Christians profess family values, but some studies show that they rent X-rated movies, divorce their spouses, and abuse their children at about the same rate as everybody else. Luke chapter 18, just a couple of chapters over. Verse 9, Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. The two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, especially like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Aren't I good? Don't break your arm. Patting yourself on the back. But the tax collector standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes toward heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, not a sinner, the sinner, the sinner, the chief sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Great. Here's, here's a Facebook post for you guys. I love giving those out. The finer the net is woven, the more numerous are the holes. That's something for legalism. more rules you make, more chance you're going to break them. Or the more loopholes you're going to have to find. You know who wrote that? A Catholic theologian. Having sworn allegiance to the 2,414 canons of the Roman Code of Canon Law, one day realized that his energy was going toward either keeping or getting around those canons rather than accomplishing the work of the gospel. Take a morning this week, would you? And read Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 to 36. Meditate on what Jesus is addressing in, that, in those verses. Actually, it's more than just an address. It was a scathing rebuke. I'll give you just a, a little sneak preview. Matthew 23, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside it's full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish and the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. 
Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I agree with the writer who said, I know of only two alternatives to hypocrisy. Number one is perfection, and the other one is honesty. Honesty is the only one available to us, isn't it? Since I have never met a person who loves the Lord our God with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength and loves her neighbor as herself, I do not view perfection as a realistic alternative. Our only option then is honesty that leads us to repentance. So this older brother then, his resentment made him self-seeking as well as slanderous. It was all about him. The comparison, you've got to note it. He says, you never gave me a 20-cent goat, but for this son of yours, you pull out all the stops at the height of hospitality and gave him the fattened calf. But it's a bogus comparison. Absolutely bogus. Let me give you this. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. And so he took it to his king, and he said, Lord, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot that I have ever grown or will ever grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect to you. And the king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, wait, you are clearly such a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden in it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted, and he went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this. And he said, my, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? And so the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low, and he said, my lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse that I have ever bred or will ever breed. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you. But the king discerned his heart. He said, thank you, and took the horse and merely dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed, probably more incensed. The king said to him, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. The joy of the father over the younger son's return in no way implies less love for the older son, no less appreciation, no less favor, no less grace. There's just simply no comparison. Yet in his eyes, there was. And so that's why he pulled back, and his resentment made himself alienated. The older son became a foreigner in his own house. You see that all the time in the church. And he's the truly lost one. His ingratitude has blinded him to the truth and his resentment has incriminated him. You know anyone like that? Because they're everywhere. The older son's ingratitude was incongruous with reality. Right? Verse 31. Son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. That was the reality. 
His complaints were incongruous with that. And his complaint was illegitimate. Because in verse 32, we see the real reason the celebration occurred. It wasn't to elevate one son over the other. It was the principle of the thing. Someone came home to the father. There must be joy when something lost is found, when something dead is made alive. We should be part of the celebration. In the words of one author, gratitude is a discipline, and it involves a conscious choice on our part. There is always the choice between resentment and ingratitude because God has appeared in my darkness, urged me to come home, and declared in a voice with affection, you are with me always, and all I have is yours. Jesus left this parable, this story, open-ended. What did the older son do? An interesting exercise for, to give you an assignment and have you all write a little bit more of this parable. What did the elder son do? I'd love to read those. Did he go in or did he go off? The invitation is always open. I think that's Jesus' point. What will you do is the question. Now, what did he do? What will you do if you find yourself in his shoes? Inside each one of us lurks a prodigal son and a critical son. The relentless tenderness of our Father is calling us from each of those tendencies. The desire of God's heart is to bring us home. Know this, whether you are lost in the distant world of unbelief or lost in the critical world of ungratefulness, you have a home and God is calling you to it. So here's the irreducible conclusion. Someone has written that proportionally the surface of the earth is smoother than a billiard ball. Try to get your head around that. The heights of Mount Everest and the troughs of the Pacific Ocean are very impressive to those of us who live on the planet, and we see it from land-level view. But from the view of Andromeda or even Mars, those differences don't matter at all, do they? In a very real sense, That is how this parable depicts the concept of the Father's grace. That is how I see the differences between the younger son and the older son in comparison to the incredible grace of the Father. The loftiest Everest of self-effort amounts to a molehill in God's eyes. You cannot earn the Father's acceptance by trying to climb. The deepest fathoms of failure amount to mere mud puddles in God's eyes. Because you cannot fall beyond the farthest reaches of God's grace. In either case, you must receive grace as a gift. The choice to let the bedrock, the choice is this. Will you let the bedrock of your resentment crumble under the blanket of God's grace? That choice is yours. Don't hold on to the resentment. Remember the two statements that I began this message with? Each one describes an aspect of grace that the prodigal sons, each of them, had to face. And they beckon us to accept what the Father's grace truly reveals. There is nothing we can do to make God love us more. That's the message to the elder brother. There is nothing we can do to make God love us less. That's the message to the younger brother. 
not giving license to sin, but opening the door of invitation to receive forgiveness. There is nothing we can do, period, besides respond to the invitation because it's all been done. It is finished. D-O-N-E. Done. Amen? For by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourselves. Even that. You've been saved through faith. But that's not of yourselves. That's a gift of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that it doesn't depend on us. We do not take that for granted. We realize, Lord God, should we sin so that grace might increase? Absolutely not. How could we who are dead to sin continue to live in it? For those of us that have sin in our lives that need to be confessed and given over to you, let us not be put off by the fact that we think that we're below the reaches of your grace because we're not. Your grace extends to the farthest depths and the highest peaks. For you are God, God Almighty, the Ancient of Days. And you pour it out upon us. All you ask is that we turn up our hands to receive it. You paid the price through your son Jesus on the cross. May we accept that and place our faith and trust in him. So that's what you desire and that's what you're calling us to. I pray that for the sake of your name. Amen.